0: The Interchange is brought to you by Uplight. Uplight builds software and analytics solutions that deliver customer experiences for utilities like Amazon and Netflix do for entertainment. Uplight made a five-part podcast series that I was involved in on what disruptors and in other industries can teach utilities. And we've got season two coming up later this fall. We're going to feature interviews and conversations with some of the most important disruptors in energy and how they're thinking about the future of the industry. Search for Illuminators wherever you get your podcasts, and find out more about Uplight's expanding services at Uplight.com. The Interchange is also brought to you by PG&E. Around the country, EV sales are growing, and up in Northern California, where PG&E operates, uh, customers represent one in every five EV drivers around the country, so a significant amount of folks. But it's not just going to be individuals, it's going to be Fleets—it's going to be corporate customers. And pg and just launched a new EV fleet program to help electrify medium and heavy-duty fleet vehicles. Get in touch with one of their specialists and find out more at pge.com/gtm. This is the Interchange: Conversations on the Future of Energy from Green Tech Media. I'm Stephen Lacey in Boston. I'm a contributing editor at GTM. With me, as always, is my co-host, Shale Khan. He's a managing director at Energy Impact Partners. A good day to you, sir. Good day to you, Stephen. A few episodes ago, we talked about a topic of growing concern, financial risks to merchant wind and solar projects that are increasingly selling electrons on the open market. And that got a lot of our listeners commenting and asking for a conversation about another financial risk, stranded assets for fossil fuels, more specifically, natural gas. Coal is already in trouble, but what about gas power plants, which are still being built at incredible volumes? Wind and solar face their own risks in a future with super cheap electricity during sunny and windy days, but natural gas plants may also face some pretty severe risks too down the road, thanks to all that cheap renewable energy. The question is, um, how acute are those risks and when will they materialize? The Rocky Mountain Institute set out to answer that question in two reports, on the economics of gas generation and one on gas pipelines. And our guest, Mark Dyson, is one of the co-authors of the analysis. He's a principal of the electricity practice at RMI. He joins us from a studio in Boulder, Colorado. Mark, hello.
1: Hello. Great to be here.
0: Thanks for being here. So we're going to try to figure out today just how much the people who invest in natural gas plants and natural gas infrastructure should be worrying, or whether they should be worrying at all. So, Shale, before we get into Mark's research, I want to kind of peer back in time a bit, a few years. When you were still leading the analyst team at GTM Research, Wood Mackenzie, you guys started exploring this question, mostly pertaining to batteries and peaker plants.
2: What question were you asking, and what did you find? Well, we were asking a much more specific question, which was, so this is, um, I don't know, three, four years ago, something like that. So, you know, we were starting to see batteries deployed in the electricity market, but they were being deployed for pretty specific purposes, often at the commercial and industrial level for demand charge management for customers, or to the extent that they were being deployed at the utility scale level, it was largely to provide things like ancillary services in the mid-Atlantic. But you could sort of see the trajectory that batteries were getting cheaper. And cheaper. And if you looked out toward the sources of value in the electricity sector, um, you know, a big portion of it is generation. And generation historically has been split up into, broadly speaking, three types of assets. You have your baseload assets, your shoulder assets that are sort of ramping up and down every day, and then these peaking assets, which have tended to be natural gas. Most recently, um, but they operate infrequently just at peaking times. And so it was sort of clear that if batteries were going to start to supplant something um, on the generation side, it was going to be peakers first. So our question was how far in the future, if ever, is it likely that batteries are going to be economically preferable to building gas peakers? Uh, And what will that mean for sort of the future of peakers? But it's worth noting that that's very specific in two ways. One, we were just looking at batteries. And two, peakers from a total electricity generation perspective are pretty small. So it was kind of just the tip of the spear, you might say. Uh, What did the analysis say and how have things played out? I want to lead that
0: into the questions that Mark's team is asking today.
2: Yeah, I mean, it seems pretty clear at this point that um, peakers are going to slowly but surely erode In the electricity market supplanted in part by batteries like it's not going to take that long it's going to happen over the next decade and it'll be faster in some places than others but you already see examples of this especially in places like california where they're making decisions not to build new peakers and instead procuring energy storage or some demand response or something like that you have folks like the ceo of next era saying you know by 2025 we're never going to build a new peaker again so that one i think is is starting to play out now
0: Okay, so fast forward a few years to 2019. Everything that could be a competitive threat to natural gas is a lot cheaper. And uh, Mark's team over at RMI said, okay, let's take this suite of technologies that includes efficiency, demand flexibility, wind, solar, and storage, and figure out how this portfolio of clean energy technologies could compete with a baseload gas plant. So, Mark, what was the question that you were trying to answer as you looked at these economics in 2019?
1: Great, yeah. Well, we actually started looking at this question in 2017. We observed the ongoing, what I refer to as the rush to gas, where coal plants had been retiring and had been replaced on a one-to-one basis with new gas-fired assets. And we, we set out to answer the question, is gas the next coal? And what I mean by that is we we all see what's happening to coal in this country. Um, Low gas prices, environmental regulations, and focused advocacy have led to this wave of coal plant retirements with stranded costs on utility balance sheets or merchant risk for developers. And then these required transition strategies, both for the folks that own the assets and then the communities that rely on them. And we saw the industry turning quickly to natural gas, and we wanted to understand if the same dynamic was about to play out, given how fast renewables and storage were coming down in price.
0: So, is that dynamic playing out?
1: I believe it is. We'll get into the research in a second, but just for some early evidence, we've already seen final investment decisions in new gas capacity in the United States decline for the last four years in a row. We've seen relatively brand new combined cycle assets retired well ahead of their book life. We've seen capacity factors for combined cycle assets decline much faster than expected. So yeah, I believe it is already playing
0: out. Well, that brings me to a framing question, which is how important is gas in new capacity development today. Um, Help us understand how much new gas capacity is being built and is being planned in the U.S. right now, which I think will help us understand what the threat may be.
1: So our team looked at about 70 gigawatts worth of new gas capacity. Uh, That's across 88 different proposed power plants. And we narrowed our scope to only those power plants that had been cited and announced for construction before 2025 but had not yet begun construction in terms of dollars that 70 gigawatts would cost you know round numbers 60
2: to 70 billion dollars at current pricing okay and so in the research what you basically said is uh will there be something more economic than these plants and what would that something be? And you're asking both the question, will there be something more economic than building these plants in the first place? And then out further into the future, will there be something more economic than just operating these plants once they've been built? But the thing that you're doing here that seems to me to be different from most of the other analysis that you see out there is that you know the knock on renewables replacing gas generally is their intermittency and the fact that they, they can't deliver some of the most important requirements that a gas plant can, for example, delivering power uh, with a guarantee during peak hours. So you were basically trying to set out and say, um, what if instead of just in in replacement for gas, you were procuring a suite of resources, you call them clean energy portfolios, what might it look like with them as a bundle? So I guess two questions there. One, can you just sort of define a clean energy portfolio um, and how you're thinking about that? And then two, just walk us through how you were trying to assess, like, could this portfolio replace the need for the gas plant? What are the specific requirements that you were setting out? So first on the definition,
1: we defined a clean energy portfolio as a combination of wind, solar, storage, energy efficiency, and demand response or demand flexibility programs that together could provide equivalent energy each month, capacity during peak hours, and ramping or flexibility equivalent to a proposed natural gas plant. Um, I want to draw a comparison here to what uh, many folks have called a virtual power plant for, for years. And we, we turned away from that term as we developed the first research product last year for two reasons. One, there's really nothing virtual about the components of a clean energy portfolio. Virtual is a little bit of a pejorative term when you're referring to wind turbines that are spinning on the planes or solar panels sitting on a field. And then second, power plant um, suggests something a little bit anachronistic with a smokestack uh, that that limits the solution space. Um, We we often talk about how people don't necessarily want kilowatt hours. We want hot showers and cold beer, but similarly, the grid doesn't need a power plant uh, in order to deliver those hot showers and cold beer. It needs a set of services, and we define those services as energy capacity and flexibility and optimize around those as, as opposed to replacement of a specific power plant.
2: So I want to hone in on one of these because I think one quibble that I think you actually outline in the report with the methodology that is maybe worth digging into just a little bit is um, that second one, availability during peak hours. So basically what you say is um, one of these clean energy portfolios needs to, in order to sort of count as a potential replacement, needs to be available to produce energy during the peak 50 hours in a year. Um, and those peak 50 hours are net of renewable generation. So the peak that's left over after all the other renewables hit the grid. But one of the questions that we're going to face over the next decade or two is what happens to those peak hours? How do they shift as we add more and more renewables to the grid, which is tough to model in. And so you guys basically just assume that we're building enough renewables to meet any given state's mandated requirement, but not any more than that. And I guess my what I'm wondering is, is there any risk that what ends up happening is we build more renewables than that. That certainly seems to be the trend line. And thus the peaks actually shift around and make it harder for these portfolios to deliver.
1: That's a great question and something we're really aware of. And it's why we make sure to state our implications as they relate to near-term investment decisions. Um, if an investor or a utility is setting out to build a new gas plant that's going to enter service in the early 2020s, For the first few years, maybe 10 years of that asset's lifetime, it's going to be operating basically like assets operate today, plus some renewables. So we model that specifically, and we model how clean energy portfolios could compete in that, what I'll call, near to midterm environment. What we don't do is model a 2040 future where wind and solar dominate energy production, and gas plants have a significantly different role to
2: play in balancing the grid. Okay. So let's let's assume that, um, that those assumptions work in the sense that if you had a clean energy portfolio, we're able to deliver the things that you're saying it would have to be able to deliver, then it could be a one-for-one replacement for a gas plant. Um, why don't you run through kind of the high-level conclusions that you found, sort of how, how at threat are these proposed gas assets? Uh, and then I think we could dig into specifically like how would this actually play out, and what are the resources that would be required, and so on.
1: So, so what we did uh, is looked at each of the 88 proposed new gas-fired power plants. And for each of the utility territories and states that those projects would be located in, we looked at the specific resources available in terms of wind, solar, demand-side management, and optimized a clean energy portfolio. We found that 90% of those clean energy portfolios equivalent to those proposed gas plants were actually cheaper on a net present value basis while providing those same equivalent grid services. In addition, we found that if those gas plants were built anyways, about 90% of them would be uneconomic to continue operating by 2035 because of the expected cost declines in wind, solar, and storage that would allow a clean energy portfolio built in 2035 to undercut
2: just the go-forward operating costs of an existing gas plant. So let's spend another minute on that just to make sure that we're clear. So the first part of what you said is that you think rather than building one of these gas plants, you could optimize a clean energy portfolio and replace it at lower cost in 90% of cases today or in the year in which these plants are supposed to be built. But then the second thing that you're saying is the stranded asset one, which is you're saying by 2035, the vast majority of these plants will become an uneconomic to continue operating uh, relative to the cost of this suite of other resources. Now, I guess one question is, um, I don't know how deep you are in the sort of economics of gas plants, but so say 2035. So that's going to be roughly after a 15 year life or maybe a 12 to 15 year life, depending on when these projects are getting built. Uh what does that mean for the economics of the projects? What kind of life are they assuming? How much of the economics come in the latter half of that life? Like what does this mean for for those actual assets if it were to play out? Our
1: understanding is that most proposed gas plants haven't assumed 30 year life with some utilities and developers uh, looking more at a 20 year life. In either case, 15 years is ahead of that uh, planned period of cost recovery.
0: Um, Okay, so I'm listening to that, right? And uh, I'm gonna quibble with something Shale Listeners don 't know this, but before I started reading my opening notes, I had pretty strong language about the coming threat to natural gas plants and at his at shale's suggestion, I moderated that language a little bit to you know raise questions about what that threat is um, and and I agree that um, there are a lot of unknowns on um, how these investments play out. But I I look at these numbers, I hear what Mark is saying, and I'm saying, that sounds like a pretty acute risk to me. Why would I want to build a bunch of new natural gas plants now? So why isn't this an acute risk, Shale?
2: Well, I guess I'd frame it as um, I'm not sure whether it's an acute risk or not. And the main reason to me is um, the sort of Difference between theoretical and practical reality in the energy market. So, an ex- another example that I think is is sort of a similar one in this sector would be things like non wires alternatives, where there was a, a you know a lot of conversation a few years ago, where we started to say, um, look, there's all these upgrades to the grid that are being made all the time at the transmission and primarily at the distribution level. And we can run a bunch of numbers and say, actually, it would be more economic. Rather than doing this upgrade, we could install a bunch of stuff behind the meter um, and control it, and instead, and it would be a lot cheaper, uh, and you would negate or delay the need for the upgrade, right? And so obviously, you know, we're going to start doing this all the time, and non-wires alternatives are going to become a huge market. And instead, though we though we definitely have some non-wires alternatives, you know, I wouldn't say that it has come to become a dominant force in how we think about upgrading the electricity grid and modernizing it and so on just yet. And part of that is just the sort of practical reality of procurement in this market. I feel sort of similar about the clean energy portfolios, which is to say, you know, the analysis could be entirely true. And it could be true that in 2035 or something like that, um, there is an optimized portfolio of resources, wind and solar and demand response and, and batteries that actually are cheaper to build than to operate an existing natural gas plant. I'm not sure that means we actually then do it. And so I guess this is a question for you, Mark. Like, how do you think about how this actually might play out? What, what would have to happen in order for these portfolios to start displacing gas assets? especially given, sorry to add one more thing, but especially given that sort of the the mechanism of procurement today doesn't really incorporate, for example, the demand side in particular. And and as I read the analysis, the demand side is absolutely the linchpin. You even say this in the report, you say that getting rid of the energy efficiency and load flexibility part of this procurement would shrink the near-term market for these clean energy portfolios by 70%. So from 90%... Uh, sort of preferable to the gas to 25%. So that's a huge difference that totally relies on like some change in the way that we procure.
1: Right. So my first answer shale is don't take our word for it. In the paper we spent some time and and we did a lot of research on what utilities and developers are actually doing here. And I think some of the leading examples from across the country even in the past 12 months illustrate the trend that that we wanted to highlight with this paper. So I'll I'll give just a few examples. Uh, Excel Energy Colorado and its Colorado Energy Plan uh, announced plans to retire two coal plants, procure a bunch of wind and solar and batteries. Uh, Part of that uh, agreement was actually significant demand side management uh, investment as well. And they are building no new gas as part of that portfolio. Uh, Similar in Michigan with Consumers Energy uh, Integrated Resource Plan from last year Uh, Retire most coal by 2030, all by 2040. Significant investment in wind and solar, significant reliance on demand flexibility to manage peaks, and no new gas. Same story in northern Indiana with NIPSCO. Uh, So so again, don't take our word for it. This is a trend that we see building, and utilities who are using all-source procurement to do their uh, planning are, are proving that this is possible.
0: And I agree with your assessment there, Shale. There are all these other unknowns out in the market and in regulation that could slow down this clean energy portfolio development and change the, change the game for natural gas plants. With that said, though, there are a bunch of recommendations in this report for utilities and regulators, many of which, if implemented, would help uh, power providers find the least cost resources, and promote this wider portfolio of clean solutions that could compete with natural gas. One of the big ones is for utilities, for vertically integrated utilities, put together technology-neutral procurements. Can you talk about some of the most important recommendations that you're making in this report?
1: Yeah. In the vertically integrated world, it's definitely the all-source technology agnostic request for proposals, Coupled with, in many cases, some change to the incentive and earnings mechanism for vertically integrated utilities, such that they're not disincentivized from wanting to own and operate their own infrastructure. Uh, Those two things together, which we're already seeing play out in a number of states,
2: uh, can unlock this market for vertically integrated utilities. I think one of the things that's interesting about those examples that you gave with NIPSCO and consumers and Excel is... uh, you know they're not procuring as i understand it they're not procuring one of these portfolios sort of all at once cuz i think one of the challenges would be you know if you were trying to just do a one for one procurement you said okay you know i could i could uh, procure energy from this gas plant i could build this gas plant instead i need a suite of resources that deliver me the exact same things then you'd be relying on a single developer or aggregator to pull together the entire clean energy portfolio, which is tough, right? Cause you're, you're trying to combine some utility scale generation assets and storage, but then also a bunch of stuff behind the meter with customers. And there are very few companies who could actually like pull that kind of portfolio together on their own. But if you could split that out into separate procurements for here's the load flexibility I need, here's the wind and solar generation that I need and maybe we'll, you know, you attach the battery to that or don't, then it strikes me as a much more feasible procurement. So when you talk about these all-source procurements, are you imagining splitting out the different resource types or the different requirements or are you imagining somebody um, on the developer side like bundling everything into a single portfolio and then the utility procuring that?
1: Uh, We see both playing out and there are advantages to to both. so, on the example of a single developer offering something in, there, there's a trend in the space towards hybrid resources that are, in many cases, coupled wind, solar, and battery projects um, with a single point of connection to the grid that can be cost-effectively optimized to deliver a set of services that a utility might procure. So, that's kind of one end of the spectrum. On the other end is what, um, for example, Glendale Water and Power did this year with its Clean Energy RFP and its integrated resource plan, where they uh, solicited bids from any kind of technology and then did an internal optimization to see which combination of those bid-in resources was least cost while providing the reliability that they needed at a system level. So I I see those as kind of two different uh, ends of the spectrum, and and it's not clear which one is going to dominate or win. I think it probably depends on where you are. And then let's
2: talk about non-vertically integrated markets. So in deregulated markets where you don't have sort of central source of procurement necessarily and you have separate market, depending on the market, you have an energy-only market like in Texas or you have energy and capacity and ancillary services, say you're in PJM or something like that. How does this play out in those kinds of markets? I think what it will
1: take in... Uh, restructured markets is an evolution of participation and uh, revenue models for participating resources. So for example, in PJM, the the discussion now is around the 10-hour discharge capacity requirement for batteries participating in the market there. what you know, compare and contrast that to some of the large battery procurements we've seen in vertically integrated territories where they're finding reliability value from batteries with lower just discharge durations. So I think that's an example of one market rule in one market, but I think it's generalizable where. Uh, As we get more familiarity with the ways in which these resources can contribute reliability services, those rules might evolve to better match the capabilities of uh, these technologies that are quickly becoming cost-effective. Another example is aggregation rules for behind-the-meter resources or distributed resources. PGM already has this for uh, providing ancillary services like regulation as more and more uh, resources that can provide capacity and energy onto the system and be recognized by the market come in, those participation will will inevitably evolve to allow more seamless participation and revenue for those resources.
0: We're brought to you by Uplight, a utility software and analytics leader that you once knew as Tendril and Simple Energy. In fact, this is a regular super group of companies. It's Tendril, Simple Energy, First Fuel Energy, Savvy, and EMI all blended together. They became Uplight, and they are bigger and better than ever before. They have also produced a five-part podcast series on how we can learn from disruptive change in other industries and apply it to utilities. I had a role in that podcast. It's called Illuminators, and season two is coming up. It's going to feature deep interviews with some leading voices in energy. Go check out Illuminators anywhere you get your podcasts. We're also brought to you by PG&E. Now is the time to begin electrifying your medium and heavy-duty fleet. What are you waiting for? It is now cost-effective to do this, and with PG&E's help, you can do it quickly. They've got limited time incentives. They have the infrastructure know-how, and they are here to help. They are going to give you the financial support, the logistical support, and the construction support. So get in touch with one of PG&E's EV specialists to learn how you can go electric, lower your total cost of ownership, and drive change. Head on over to pge.com GTM. What about the people with money? who are funding these plants, funding pipeline infrastructure. um, How are they thinking about this issue currently? And as you look at these numbers and potential competitive threats, do you feel like uh, they have concern that's commensurate with what you think the economic challenge is? Some of them do. And who are the (laughs) ones that do? (laughs)
1: Uh, Well, so I'll I'll give you an example from the integrated utility world. The the CEO of Consumers Energy is on the record in announcing her company's IRP last year, citing the stranded asset risk of building a $1 billion combined cycle gas plant and and specifically turning away from that decision and prioritizing a more measured investment in renewables and storage and demand-side management that would present less risk for her customers. so, as I said, some some investors in vertically integrated utilities are, are cottoning onto this risk. In the restructured markets, I, I think this has yet to uh, gain salience, right? I think we see a lot of the proposed gas capacity that we studied in our reports uh, announced for construction in PJM and, and ERCOT. And our our conclusions are pretty clear. Investment in those plants in the next five years is a bet against any one of three things happening. Uh, continued cost declines in renewables and storage that are maybe a bit faster than the middle-of-the-road estimates we've used would accelerate the stranded asset timeline. Any price or cap on carbon would do the same by increasing the cost of operating that gas plant. And then this idea of reforming and evolving the market participation rules. In the the revenue estimates that I've seen for new gas in some of these markets, they basically project the current revenue model for that gas plant out in time and don't necessarily factor in the competitive pressure that clean energy could provide in lowering the energy clearing price, lowering the capacity clearing price. If any one of those three things happens, we think these investments are going to go south.
0: And what does it mean to have a stranded asset? I I don't think we've actually answered that question fully. So when we throw around that term stranded assets, like how are these plants going to be utilized? Um, What does that mean financially for project owners and investors? And what does that mean for like surrounding infrastructure?
1: So what we mean when we say it is go forward operating costs, that are uh, higher than the expected revenue. And it, it would lead to a stranded asset situation if that situation happened prior to uh, debt being paid off or uh, equity lenders getting their money back. So it's a, an asset on the balance sheet that, that no longer is expected to produce enough revenue to uh, recoup costs.
0: And then what happens to the plants, like, are they operated at all? Like, how do you, how are these plants actually operating in a market where they're uncompetitive?
1: So take the example of coal, where the situation is already playing out for a significant number of coal plants around the country. Merchant owners of coal plants are often choosing to retire those plants because their go-forward costs are, are greater than their expected revenues. Vertically integrated utilities with some form of cost recovery and rates that's been allowed by the regulators are taking different strategies. And we don't necessarily know which of those strategies is going to dominate. Again, probably depends on where you are. Everything from disallowance of cost recovery by the regulator, which we haven't seen yet, to securitization, to accelerated depreciation. um, All of these are, are options that coal plant owners are considering or pursuing today. That we think are are valid models for how gas plant owners in twenty in the twenty thirties might treat the same question with those assets,
2: yeah, I think it's an interesting question, like if you assume that this does play out and i'm a i I'm an owner and operator of one of these gas plants that is underwater you know starts to be underwater sometime in 15 years or something like that. What do I do? And I think in those cases, you have a similar set of options, maybe slightly different um, because gas, these plants are typically a little more flexible than coal plants are. And so you have the possibility of saying, okay, maybe I can continue to operate this thing, but operate it a little bit differently, you know, depending on the market. So say you're in Texas and say, you know, peak prices in ERCOT continue to spike really, really high? Can you operate it a little bit more like a peaker and keep it alive for longer? And then you have to sort of predict, like, am I going to be out of the money forever more or will it come back? And what what is the price of natural gas at that point, and how much does it affect the economics? So it's like it's a relatively complex equation, I think. Not to mention that they could say, well, you know, okay, I don't think I can make money off of this, but I have an asset in the form of land and an interconnection. Maybe I can retire and replace um, with you know something new, either a new gas plant or probably more likely at that point, wind or solar and storage. So to me, it's sort of hard to say exactly how any individual one would play out. But I do think you're right that the suite of options probably looks reasonably similar to what merchant coal operators have been facing for the past couple of years.
1: Yeah, there's an important difference, which is that a lot of coal plants have take or pay contracts for long periods on their fuel supply. So those coal costs are actually not easily avoidable in the short term. Uh, Often gas plants, especially merchant gas plants, do not have that same structure. Uh, So they have a little bit more flexibility in how they manage their cost structure and how they could adapt to different conditions in a 2035 grid. So instead of retiring the plant, what what might be likely is that they this combined cycle for example that they built expecting to run it at 60% capacity factor, they actually run it at 10 or 20 because it's only operating during those peak times or in the polar vortex in 2035 when wind and solar aren't as available as they were expected to be. The, the question that is unresolved and probably unresolvable is, does that use case for a gas plant produce enough revenue to justify that project's investment today? And I think we would argue that that's a big risk that investors are taking by choosing to prioritize these projects, is they don't know how much money they can earn. Running the plant at significantly lower capacity factors fifteen years from now compared to their projections today.
0: Okay, so both of you took issue with my framing in some way. I sent some notes around trying to establish the bounds of this conversation, and i I said, uh, I think one of my my headlines was, "Is the natural grass bridge." Crumbling natural gas, of course, has long been called the bridge to the clean energy future, and the question is: uh, Is that bridge coming down? And I think, Mark, you took issue with that framing.
1: Um, I would say it's narrower than we thought it was—a lot narrower. <clears throat> I what think do you
0: mean, the bridge is narrower?
1: Exactly, the bridge is narrower. Uh, we we've seen what what I call the the coal to gas swap in this country. I, I mentioned it earlier. Utilities and investors in deregulated markets have been swapping out retiring coal capacity with new gas capacity, basically at a one-to-one ratio for the last 10 years. That, that's a nice wide bridge that they were expecting, that they could continue walk across and make money on these new assets that would replace coal plants one-for-one. What we're seeing is we look both today at the near-term investment decisions that that bridges. You know, I'll, I'll go back to our results. About ninety percent narrower in the next five years than we, we think investors are planning on. And then going forward, um, if you look out to a, a high renewables future grid, you you want gas there, or you want something there that can operate like gas does today. It's either long duration storage or some other form of dispatchable generation or long duration demand flexibility um, which isn't commercial today right uh, but you don't want uh, you don't want it to operate all the time you, you want to take advantage of as many cheap, Uh, Kilowatt hours from wind and solar projects as you can and so the role of natural gas is relegated to a balancing resource at much lower capacity factors And under current schemes much lower revenues uh, than is currently being planned So that's why I argue that the bridge is narrower.
0: So as you set forth to ask these questions and write this report when you came to the end You crunched the numbers you wrote the report. Did you find any conclusions that surprised you?
1: Yeah, one of the biggest surprises was the differences in competitiveness Uh, between combined cycle generation versus peaking generation uh, compared to clean energy portfolios. Our results are pretty clear that combined cycle, higher capacity factor generation projects are actually much less uh, cost effective compared to clean energy portfolios than peakers, which goes against some of the findings that Shell was laying out earlier and others have found where peakers are actually easier to replace with clean energy. And um, we went round and round on this and, and talked to a lot of different folks who had studied this issue before. It, it comes down to a couple things. First, combined cycles just have a higher avoided cost potential because they're a little bit more capital intensive and they burn a lot more fuel. So they, if you can avoid building a combined cycle or you know, fast forward 15 years, stop running it, Uh, you you can save uh, fuel and operating costs at a much higher uh, rate than you could with a lower capacity factor asset. The second thing is uh, the peakers that we studied in this uh, project are being proposed in areas where the wind and solar resources aren't necessarily as well correlated to load and therefore much more storage would be required to meet those high net load hours in our clean energy portfolio framing than with a combined cycle asset in areas where wind and solar are much better correlated. And so those resources, those peaking resources that we studied that end up winning in our economic analysis are serving this role that we were talking about a few minutes ago around dispatching energy into the system when wind and solar aren't available, but at much lower annual capacity factors, so 10% or less, for example. Those are the kinds of assets that are actually economic in our analysis and we believe would be economic going forward versus these always-on baseload replacements.
2: Yeah, I think I think that's probably right. And I think that was a nuance that when we were first looking at this, we probably missed out on, which is the way that I've started to think about the future of peakers is like, you know, you're gonna see peakers that had otherwise been planned being shelved earlier, then you will see this sort of widespread for combined cycle plants, like you'll, you'll start to see peakers getting displaced first, but it'll turn out that that's not a universal solution and that you're still actually going to need peakers in a bunch of places for all the reasons that you just described. So you'll see like an early wave of peaker replacement, but then peakers will turn out to be pretty resilient overall, where then it'll sort of shift over to combined cycle replacement.
1: I agree, but the nuance I'd add there is that in that narrative, you're betting against any other kind of resource coming on and displacing the use case of a peaking gas plant. So any sort of long-duration storage, long-duration demand flexibility, or lower-carbon dispatchable fuel-based generation, those could all do the same things that a peaker does. So those investments are still risky, but those technologies aren't commercial today.
0: Mark Dyson is a principal of the electricity practice at the Rocky Mountain Institute Uh, We've got a pair of reports on natural gas plants and pipeline infrastructure that we're going to post to our show notes so you can read those. Uh, Really interesting analysis, trying to answer some questions that I think a lot of people with, you know, tens of billions of dollars at stake are trying to answer as well. Thank you so much, Mark. We really appreciate it. Thank
1: you, Stephen. Thank you, Shale.
0: So, Shale you uh, were uncertain about how acute this risk is. As you dug through these reports and you heard Mark, do you come away from this conversation feeling any differently or do you still have the same level of uncertainty?
2: No, I would actually say uh, that was pretty compelling. It may be that 90% of the plants become an uneconomic, but not 90% of them are displaced, but it doesn't need to be 90% for it to be a huge impact on the market. So, you know, will this end up sort of stuck in the uh, non-warers alternatives land? I think you've got me convinced that it probably won't actually, that this is going to happen faster and a wider scale than that. Um, I still think there are some real challenges around sort of fixing how procurement works, as you mentioned, fixing utility incentive structures, fixing markets. So it's no small task, but uh, it's it's a pretty compelling story.
0: Well, I suspect our listeners will want to weigh in on this. So as always, you can hit us up on Twitter. Mark is there. Shale and I are there. Interchange Show is there. And we love to get your feedback so please send your uh your praise your back slapping your criticism tell us what we got wrong um we want to hear exactly what you think about this because it helps us and also of course you can find this show anywhere you get your podcasts and if you want to give us a rating and review super helpful as well if you have any suggestions for show topics you can reach me at postscriptaudio at gmail.com. I do not get to respond to everyone, but I do read everything, and it certainly helps us guide show topics that we choose. Shale Khan is my co-host. He is a managing director at Energy Impact Partners. Daniel Waldorf is our editor and co-producer. Thank you, Daniel. I am Stephen Lacey. This is The Interchange, conversations on the future of energy from Green Tech Media. We'll catch you soon.